Hebrews 1, 1 to 14. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. To which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? When I was about 15, the very first of the original Star Wars movies came out. And I can remember it very vividly. Uh, you might remember the, the original, like the proper Star Wars movie. Uh, we went to see it down at a drive-in in Tilopia, and there was a particular reason for going to see it at a drive-in. My brother had a friend who had a ute, and what we used to do is fill the back of the car up, back of the ute up with bean bags, take the car down, drive as close as you possibly could to the screen for the movie. Because you laid in the back of the car, staring up at the screen, and if you got really close, your entire field of vision was taken up with this screen. And the very opening of this, this movie really needed that to happen. You had to see this whole screen. If you remember the movie, if you've seen it, there's the text that comes up at the beginning explaining what the story is and how the Empire's been attacked and yada, yada, yada. But then... A spaceship comes in over the top of the screen and fills up the entire screen, this massive spaceship. And as you're lying there in your bean bag, in the back of this ute, right up close to the screen, it felt like the spaceship was going to land right on top of you. It's a stunning opening to this movie, and you really needed to be able to do that to enjoy it. Well, this morning we're opening up to one of the books of the Bible that has, without a doubt 
the most stunning opening of all of the New Testament books. Uh, If you read any of the other letters in the New Testament, they all start exactly the same way. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus to the church in Corinth, or it starts with James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. They all start like a letter. They tell you who it is that's writing and who it is that they're writing to. But not Hebrews. Hebrews just launches right in and makes these extraordinary claims about who Jesus is. Look at these opening words again. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. He doesn't start with Bill, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to the Christians. No, he just launches straight in and he wants his readers to be overwhelmed by this message about who Jesus is. He wants to stress how important Jesus is. He wants to stress how unique Jesus is. He wants his readers to be in awe of Jesus. And did you see what he said? In the past, God spoke through a variety of different means. You can read it in the Old Testament. You can see that God sometimes spoke directly to people, sometimes spoke through prophets, sometimes spoke through donkeys in the pages of the Old Testament. But now he has revealed himself by his son. There's no vagueness from God here. No no left guessing what it is that God really wants. No misunderstanding about what it is that God is saying. God has revealed himself perfectly and clearly through his son, Jesus. Now that's not all he says about Jesus in these opening words. He jams in so much more. The fact that Jesus is God's son, that Jesus is exactly in every detail God. He tells us that the universe is made through him, that it's sustained by him, that he's the one who's paid for our sins, that he's the one who now sits at the right hand of God. Now much of what he says here in these opening verses He's going to go on to explain a little bit later on in the letter. But the main issue that he wants to address, particularly in this opening chapter, is the overwhelming superiority of Jesus. One of the things that he stresses in this letter, in in this first chapter, is that Jesus is superior to the angels. Now I'm going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to guess that Most of us have probably not had any sleepless nights wondering whether or not Jesus is superior to the angels. In fact, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, most of you have probably never even thought about that issue before because it's so overwhelmingly unimportant for us. But it was extraordinarily important for the people that he's writing to. Let me explain why. For Jewish people, angels held an incredibly important place. They were the mediators of God's covenant. They were the the middlemen, the people who stood between God 
and the people of Israel. Uh, In his speech uh, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen says this about angels. You have received the law that was put into effect through angels. It was the angels who actually gave the, the law, the old covenant, to God's people Israel. And Paul says much the same thing in Galatians. The law was put into effect through angels. So these guys had a, had a very high place in Jewish thinking. The law, the Old Testament covenant that God made with his people, these were the mediators. On the hierarchy of things, angels were a little lower than God, but way above us mere mortals, they were considered to be incredibly important. But the writer of Hebrews wants to, start, wants to show that a better covenant has now been established. And do you know how you can tell that it's a better covenant that's been established? Because someone more important than angels has given us this one. The new covenant is not mediated by angels, it's mediated by God's own Son. He goes on to say that the name that Jesus has is clearly superior to that of the angels. Jesus isn't called an angel. He's not a a representative of God. He is God. He is God's son. And the name that he has shows just how superior he is. So look at verse number four of chapter one. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father, or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. For many years, Rupert Murdoch uh, was a major player in the newspaper industry here in Australia, even though he was living overseas just about all of that time. Normally, if there was something going on uh, in his newspaper empire, he would send a significant staff member from the United States or from the UK to come over here and sort things out. Uh, The more important the issue, the bigger the staff member that would come out to handle those things. But for a while there, if there were serious matters that were being dealt with in his empire here in Australia, you knew that there were serious matters being dealt with because he sent Lachlan to deal with it. He wasn't going to entrust this to a staff member. He would send his son to sort out this issue. Now, if that's true for Rupert Murdoch, then it's even more true for God, isn't it? God has sent his son into the world. He may have sent angels and may have spoken through prophets in the past, but now... He has sent his son. And the business that Jesus came to do is far greater and far more important than anything that's been done before. It's not just the name that Jesus has that is greater, the position that he has is also greater. Uh, Look at verse number six. And again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now again, that might seem like a fairly trivial detail or a cute thing to us, but do you understand how Jewish people would have viewed this? The mediators of the old covenant, they're being told, the angels are being told that they need to bow down and worship Jesus. 
And jump down to verse 13. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Well, the answer is none. God never said that to any of the angels. There can be no doubting the status that Jesus has. Jesus, the son, now sits at the right hand of God. I mean, go back to the very opening verse. Uh, opening verses, verse 3. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That's the position that Jesus now holds. Right hand of God. What becomes very obvious to us as we start to read through the book of Hebrews is that this is written to a group of Jewish Christians. And what also becomes very obvious is that they're in danger of drifting away from Jesus. As God's people, Israel, they were hoping for the day that the Messiah would come. Hoping for the new covenant that God had promised to establish. Now they've come to trust in Jesus. They've recognised that he is the Messiah. That he has brought in the new covenant. But along with trusting in Jesus, they're now beginning to experience persecution because of their faith. And they're wondering if it's all worth it. I mean, life wasn't hard when they were living under the old covenant. It seems to have been the new covenant that it's brought with it these difficulties. And they're wondering if they can maybe just slip back to the old covenant. You know, back off on all this new covenant stuff, the stuff that seems to have brought the trouble with it. I mean, they can still love God. They can still be sincere in their faith. But maybe they can just relieve some of this hardship and persecution. But the writer of Hebrews wants to say, that's crazy thinking. Jesus has established a far greater covenant than the old covenant. You can't turn your back on Jesus. In fact, look at the warning that he gives at the beginning of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such great salvation? If the old covenant, the one that was mediated by angels, if that one was binding, well, how much greater is the salvation that comes through Jesus? How much more serious would it be to turn your back on Jesus? I think most Australians probably have an idea of God that he's very distant and remote, probably unable to really understand what life's like for us down here on earth. For most people, God's way off there in heaven and we're left to sort of fend for ourselves down here. I think there are probably even some Christians who would kind of sympathise with that view, feel that that might be the way that it is for them. But that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible knows exactly what life is like down here on earth. And how does he know? Well, because he came into the world. Because he became one of us. 
If chapter 1 is all about stressing the superiority of Jesus, then chapter 2 is all about stressing the humanity of Jesus. That Jesus is God in the flesh. Sure, Jesus is superior to angels and it's important to understand that. But Jesus also became exactly like us. I remember hearing a story one time about a young boy who was very frightened of thunderstorms and especially of lightning. He was terrified that he was going to be hit by lightning. And one night during a fierce thunderstorm, he ran as usual into his parents' bed and jumped into bed with them. And the father said to him, God knows what you're feeling, you know, you don't have to be afraid. And after a little pause, the boy said to his father, how can God know what I'm feeling? He doesn't have skin on. Kind of a clever observation for a little boy. But the fact is, God knows what we're feeling. Jesus is God with skin on. In fact, that's exactly what the writer of the Hebrews says, doesn't he? Chapter 2, verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. He put skin on so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. This letter is written to a group of Christians who are beginning to suffer persecution because of their faith in Jesus. And it's getting to the point where it may even cost them their lives. So these aren't hollow theoretical words that we're throwing around here in this letter. The writer knows exactly what their situation is. He knows exactly what they're facing. And he can confidently say, God knows what you're going through. Jesus sympathises with your situation. But more than that, Jesus has set us free from the fear of death. Because we know that when this life draws to a close, there is the absolute certainty of life forever with God. Not because we've tried hard, not because we've done a few good things in our life, no, because we've trusted Jesus. The one who is able to take us from this life to the next. Verse 14 again of chapter 2, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. They're amazing words, aren't they? If you have your trust in Jesus, then you are set free from the fear of death. It's always intriguing to me to see how it is that people handle coming towards the end of their life. Some people approach it with incredible uncertainty, not knowing what's going to happen. Some people kind of try and approach it with kind of Arnold Schwarzenegger bravado. They're going to charge through and 
they're pretty sure they'll be right because they're so confident in themselves. But the writer of Hebrews says, no, you can have complete confidence in Jesus if your trust is in him. In some ways, this letter to the Hebrews seems very, very removed from our experience, especially when you read stuff about angels, and we hardly think at all about angels, but it was obviously a significant thing for them. It was written to Jewish Christians in in danger of slipping back into Judaism. Well, here we are on Sunday morning, and our trust is clearly in Jesus, and there's really no danger that we're going to be slipping into Judaism. It's written to Christians who are in danger of losing their life simply because of their faith in Jesus. We live in a country where there's incredible religious freedom. I doubt that any of us in our lifetime will face losing our life, let alone any persecution because of our faith in Jesus. But I think we have far more in common with those Christians that this letter was written to than we might imagine. So we do face the danger of drifting away from Jesus. For us, it'll be a little bit more subtle. See, as your life goes on, there is this ever-present danger that you'll just hold a little less tightly to Jesus. That you'll feel the pressure to back off on the Jesus bit of your life. The pressure may not come in the form of physical persecution. It may come from your workmates. It may come from your neighbours. It may come from your family and friends. But I bet that almost every person in this room would be able to talk about a time when they've felt that pressure. Just to back off a little bit. Just to hold a little less firmly to Jesus. That's why the writer says what he says right at the beginning of chapter 2, that first verse. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Great word, drift. And it's the boat word that the writer's got in mind there. A few years ago, we went up to the uh, uh, Great Barrier Reef and we went out to a place called Hardy's Reef about two hours off the coast Um, right out where there's massive deep water and huge tides, three metre tides. So the water really rushes in and out. And we're actually, you get off the boat, you get onto this pontoon and you get yourself kitted up to go snorkelling and you go snorkelling on the reef. So we jumped into the water and we had our goggles down and we were looking at all of the coral and looking at all of the fish. And by the time we finally came up for air, we noticed that we'd actually drifted about 200 metres away from this pontoon. I'm not the best of swimmers, but I mean, I'm thinking this is, we're in serious trouble here. Now we hadn't even noticed that we'd drifted. We'd just been busy looking at the coral. Hadn't even felt that we'd moved anywhere. I was expecting to look up and see the pontoon still sitting right there, but it was now 200 metres away. So that's the thing with drifting, isn't it? You don't plan to do it and you don't even really notice that it's happening. But before you know it, you're a very long way from where you wanted to be. And drifting from Jesus, I think, happens pretty much in the same way. But Jesus is not someone that you want to let go of. 
drifting away from Jesus is serious. Let me read again those words from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1, 2 and 3. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels is binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? Now, I'm going to guess that the very fact that you're here this Sunday morning probably means you're not in great danger of drifting away. Maybe you are. But the fact that you're here on a Sunday morning probably indicates you're not in too much danger. But maybe you know people who are drifting. Perhaps people who used to be involved in this church. People who you know who used to be very involved in Christian things, but they're not so involved anymore. Maybe friends, maybe family members, maybe people that you knew from years ago. What can you do to encourage them to stop drifting? See, that's what this letter's all about. In essence, if you had to sum it up in one sentence, that's what the writer has written this letter for. He wants to stop his friends from drifting. So how can you help those people who you know who are perhaps drifting to stop drifting away from Jesus? Can I ask you to think about that today and, and think about that this week? But don't just think about it. What will be the practical steps that you can take to help stop those people from drifting? I mean, at the very least, you need to be praying for them, praying that they don't drift any further away. But maybe this week you could make a phone call. Maybe send them an email, let them know that you've been thinking of them. Let them know that you're concerned that they're drifting away from Jesus. You might have been able to get some paper from Juliana and write a letter. But you need to do something. You need to take some action. So drifting away from Jesus, it's serious. Like the writer of Hebrews says, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away.